Welcome to The Musicologist and The Nerd. I'm Dr. Elisabeth Concord. And I am Nicholas Atchison Wainwright, the third. But you can call us Libby and Nick. Much, much better. <laughs> so we were talking a while back and decided that it would be really fun to get together and have some conversations about music. Yeah, it turns out that when you have somebody with a PhD in musicology, like uh, Miss Libby over there, and somebody who is just a general nerd about music, we have long drawn out conversations that tend to bore our friends. Very much so. Yeah, but you know, when we uh, get together with other music people, they seem interested. So we figured let's let's try sharing this. Let's let's see what we got. So this is sort of our get to know you podcast. Uh, we are thinking that we will tell you a little bit about ourselves, and then we will introduce you to kind of our musical taste by telling you our top five favorite musicals, a little bit about them, why we like them, how they relate to our lives, and then we'll tell you what we're listening to. What's on our iPod? Oh, that sounds so old. <laughs> You're old, Libby. I know let's, I am. Let's just admit it. Um, but yeah, and this is, like she said, just an intro. We are definitely not only musical people. It's just part of our taste because we're general music nerds. And so. uh, a little disclaimer, shall we say. Uh, while I do have a doctorate and Nick is a giant nerd, we are by no means professionals. So, you know, we're kind of armchair music people, armchair musicologists, if you will. So we give you the best information we have, but, you know, we could be wrong too. We're still humans. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Okay, well, let's kick it off with Libby. Let's uh, let Libby kind of give her little bio, where she came from, and why she does what she does. Sure. So how did I become a musicologist? Well, I grew up here on San Juan Island in a very musical family. My grandpa on my mom's side was a Christian church preacher in Oregon, and for most of his life, he traveled the Pacific Northwest singing sermons, which sounds like a very funny thing to do, but uh, people loved it, particularly older people in Christian churches. And he would take his Bose machine and travel all over the place, often with me in tow, uh, singing different sermons to people. I spent a lot of my childhood at my grandparents' house and we would listen to music all the time, particularly hymns. We'd watch lots of movie musicals, you know, starring all the greats, Gene Kelly, Danny Kaye, Debbie Reynolds, Judy Garland, Nelson Eddy, Jeanette McDonald, all of them. Uh, in my parents' house, it was always a place of music and theater. Both of my parents are actors and singers, and almost every aspect of my life was involved in music some way while I was in school. I spent my formative years volunteering at San Juan Community Theater, where my mom worked as the volunteer coordinator for mm, almost a decade, I think. We went to every single event that the theater had to offer, from Battlefield Band and chamber music concerts to community theater productions and the occasional professional group that would come through. We sang in church. As kids, we took piano lessons, and I joined the band in fifth grade. I started on clarinet, but I quickly mastered any instrument that was put in front of me. You know, once you learn to read music, as Nick well knows, uh, you can basically play any instrument that you want. So by high school, I was all about band. I was playing trumpet and saxophone and jazz and pep bands, and I was first year clarinet in the concert band. I even played Barry Sax in the One More Time Big Band, which is a local group that we have here. So this is where Nick comes in. Nick moved to our small town when I was in 10th grade and also played clarinet in the band. 
I thought he was cool, but kind of a dork. You know, those younger kids, those ninth graders, they're just, you know, kind of dorky, but it definitely takes one to know one. We hung out in class and had some of the same music and drama friends, but we weren't really close. By the time high school was over, I knew exactly what I wanted to do in life. I wanted to be a band teacher or an anthropologist, but band teacher won out. I attended the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, graduating with a bachelor's in instrumental music education in 2007. Right before I was about to go into my master's program, I was going to become a teacher, I was going to get the master's degree, teaching certificate, and go out into the world. I had a complete freak out and changed course. I had studied abroad in Ireland for a semester, and I really fell in love with that part of the world. On a whim, I applied to a few schools in the UK because Ireland's application process was much too complicated. You had to apply to apply, and it just didn't fit with my timeline. I was accepted into the University of Bristol in Western England. And there, at the Center for the History of Music in Britain, the Empire, and Commonwealth, I received an MA in Musicology, focusing on music in late 19th century Victoria, BC. This is the moment in history that sealed my fate as a musicologist. I finished my degree in September of 2008. Anybody remember what happened in September of 2008? Like the whole U.S. economy crashing? I was entering the market just as that happened. I had two choices. I could either start paying off my steadily growing student loans with whatever minimum wage job, stocking the shelves at Walmart on the night shift is what I could find, I could scrape together while I was living in my parents' spare bedroom, or I could go back to school and incur more debt. My aunt had taught music in universities and had fairly recently completed her Doctor of Musical Arts degree, so I decided to follow in her footsteps. I trekked off to the University of Victoria in British Columbia, full of bright hopes for the future. I chose to continue studying music in late 19th century Victoria, eventually writing my dissertation on music and musical ritual and its role in the formation of identity and the consolidation of colonial power. That was kind of a mouthful. (laughs) I made many good friends and had many awesome adventures along the way, but by the time I graduated with my PhD in musicology in 2017, eight long years after I started my degree, the life of a professional musicologist had lost its appeal. During those years, I had moved back to my hometown and married my husband, Nate, the best roadie a musician could ask for. Completely tone deaf, wonderful audience member, lovely roadie. He can carry a saxophone like nobody's business. He's also the one who got me listening to podcasts. For the first time in my life, my life no longer revolves around music. Now I work for local government and participate in local musicals at the theater in my free time. In 2014, Nick moved back to the island after tramping around the U.S. and Australia. He joined our game nights and eventually became our roommate. We discovered that, even as adults, we had a lot in common, particularly our incredibly nerdy love of music. We started getting together to watch musicals. I fully blame Nick for introducing me to the earworm that is Hamilton. Last year, Nate and I were lucky enough to have Nick's fiancée, now wife, Elizabeth, as our roommate. We've already been on one couple's date to a major concert, Sarah Bareilles, and have plans to attend more. I'm now a very happy armchair musicologist with a lot of knowledge about a very small window of musical history and an insatiable appetite to learn more. That's me. How about you, Nick? Well, I'm going to just start off by saying my musical experience varies greatly from Libby's. So first, who am I? Jean Valjean. Okay. So, unlike Libby, I did not grow up in a musical family. Um, My family was construction workers, builders, laborers, generations back. But for some reason, when I was in middle school, 
the week before winter break started in my eighth grade year, my dad somehow showed up to our house with a broken clarinet and for some reason brought it to me and says, hey, do you want to play this? And I had literally never heard of this instrument in my life, but I'm sure, why not? So I went over to the band teacher. I said, hey, I want to join band and what do I need to do? He told me what book to buy and... I walked over to the music shop across the street from my house, bought a new mouthpiece, bought some reeds, bought the book, and spent two weeks going over every page of that book until I knew how to play the clarinet, at least to a beginner level, to, you know, match the rest of my band. And by no means was I a great musician, but I was I was on par with everybody else, and that got me on track. So I continued through my eighth grade year, Playing the clarinet just like any other thing never was really hooked into it, never had any strong commitment until that summer. I was done, I was ready to move on to high school, and I got a phone call from our band teacher in the high school I was going into asking if I wanted to join the marching band. I didn't know marching band was a thing, <laughs> and yet I'm like, sure. So it turns out that when you want to march in a competitive marching band, you have to learn how to march. So I went and they had a special several week long band camp where you just marched and marched and marched and got yelled at by drum majors. And it was a great time. I actually, I sincerely loved it because you developed this bond with your bandmates that I hadn't had at that point or really with anybody. So I just jumped into it. And as I entered into high school, I, I was totally immersed into this whole new world that I never expected. Uh, the school I went to actually had a, its own small wing devoted to the band. Rooms full of thick wool uniforms that would be the bane of my existence in the hot Southern California summer. And uh, a group of devoted band nerds that would be my best friends from day one. As well as becoming immersed in the culture that was the marching band, I became immersed in the instruments. I was fascinated by almost every instrument I saw and messed around with anything I could get my hands on, whether everybody liked it or not. Um, I thought about joining the drumline in the off-season since the marching band season was uh, only a few months and learning how to play more and more instruments and uh, even that same year, as soon as the uh, marching band season ended, I switched up to a bass clarinet for a concert season. You know, I, I saw the opportunity. I, I took it, went bigger and better. But unfortunately for me, halfway through that freshman year, we up and moved 1,500 miles from beautiful, sunny Southern California to cold and dreary Friday Harbor on San Juan Island. Hey, I resent that. <laughs> resemble that <laughs> true uh turns out when i got up to this little island which to be fair i didn't know washington had islands before this move but when i got up here i found that even though our school was smaller that was 400 kids versus 4,000 kids in my previous school the feeling of the band was just the same from the first day I walked into that band classroom, which coincidentally was the first day after winter break, um, just like that first day in middle school, I immediately felt welcome there. Libby, who happened to be my section leader at the time, was like, yes, come sit, play. And I completely fell out of my element. I didn't know any of these people. And I just 
started chugging along. It actually took me a couple of weeks to approach my band teacher and say, hey, actually, I was playing bass clarinet. And she's like, okay, yeah, here's one. Go ahead. And I was off. That, that was the, I felt like the coolest kid there. Yeah, I mean, bass clarinet, cool instrument, right? Anyways, so over the years, I really fell into my own in the school and I worked my, my way up. I continued messing around with every instrument I could. And uh, this time, friends were more than eager of letting me try them out. I, uh, I learned that, you know, a trumpet is really tricky to get the right pitch on. The tuba was so much fun to play. I enjoyed that. And I learned that really only a masochist would ever try to play the French horn. You're so right. I never thought about it that way, but you're so right. <laughs> my the, the luckiest thing for me though is my last couple of years of high school, I got to move up to the B flat contrabass clarinet, which I still attest is the coolest instrument in the world and one I would love to own if I get the chance one day. But sadly, once I left high school, my musical opportunities faded away. Um I, as Libby said, I started trouncing around the, the uh, world a bit. I ended up uh, living in Australia for a couple of years. Um, but the cool thing there is while living literally in the middle of nowhere, a bunch of aboriginals that ran a boomerang shot uh, taught me how to play the didgeridoo. And I learned that invaluable skill of circular breathing, um, which was just so cool. And when you apply it to other instruments, it's just ultra nerdy. Um so I, I came back and I started wandering around the country a bit. I lived back on San Juan Island for a little while. And uh, then I decided I needed to keep moving. But I always kept finding instruments. So as I was living on a sailboat in Seattle, I found myself most evenings relaxing in the cockpit in the summer, enjoying the stars, plucking away on my little five-string banjo. Or when I uh, lived in the cold, nasty horribleness that is Minneapolis. I found myself tucked away, hiding in my little apartment, playing my mandolin. And and uh, over the years, I just kept acquiring more and more instruments. Um, at the moment, I currently own 25. Oh, it's only 25? I thought it was 27. Uh, I have this problem of not only collecting them, but giving them to friends as I go. Just to, <laughs> I thought just like a week ago it was 27. I, I like to spread the addiction. <laughs> but it's uh, it's been a growing collection. And there's nothing that I haven't really wanted. So I have everything from your basic guitar, banjo, a few types of flutes, uh, all the way up to some drums. I have a 13-string Japanese koto just to, you know, keep things interesting. And But I'm always looking at cool things. My wife is doing really good at keeping me in check, um, despite my uh, instrument dealer trying to show me cooler and cooler instruments. He has a couple that I'm looking at right now. I'm still I'm still hoping one day to, to acquire that most beautiful, wonderful instrument, the B-flat contrabass clarinet. The next time I have a spare $7,000, I might have to just pick one of those up. But that's, that's uh, for the future. He did put it on his registry, his wedding registry. Just just a side note, in case someone wanted to buy Nick a contrabass clarinet for his wedding, the, it was an option. There, There is that. Now, 
as much as music has ruled my life and as much as I've spent time messing with instruments, I've never spent as much time as Libby and I haven't had the chance to master musical instruments. I'm more of a, I, I just pluck around, I play with them, I, you know, I, I tinker, but I keep myself, unfortunately, a little bit too busy for that. Um, at the moment, I uh, work as a public servant, just like Libby. Um, but in a different side, I work in emergency services. So uh, I'm a 911 dispatcher, a firefighter, and an EMT. And then on top of that, I, I uh, own and run a small handyman business just because I felt my life was a little too uh, boring, I guess. But I've I've kept forming my life and I've established myself again once on this little island, growing and kind of molding myself into the theater scene as much as I can. Um, because I have this limitation of, you know, four jobs, I end up just uh, filming and recording most of the productions at the theater nowadays. Every once in a while, getting a chance to uh, act or mess around or make some noise with them, but it's it's been good. And in the last year, I've been lucky enough to have my uh, fiance, now wife, move up to the island from Southern California and, and uh, you know, trying to get her to immerse into the culture a little bit more. Although, you know, the first year is a little cold. We'll get her up on the stage. We will. She'll be up there. Absolutely. We'll get her up there. Okay. So now that you've know a little bit about us, we're going to take a little bit of time and tell you a little bit about our musical taste. And we're going to focus a little bit on in this episode on our favorite musicals. Now, I think for both Libby and I, musicals are not something that we've done a ton of in the past, but in the recent years, we've both really fallen headfirst into. So since they're on the forefront of our mind, we're going to we're going to dive right into this. And I'm, we're going to go top five. And we're going to start with you here, Libby. That's right. Yeah, that's actually sort of where the genesis for this podcast came from, because we started Nick and I started watching musicals going oh you haven't seen that one well here we should watch it oh you haven't seen that one well we should watch that one and it kind of got us having conversations and talking about different parts of music that we were interested in and even though I'm a musicologist Nick is constantly asking me about musicals that I've never seen so uh it's been it's been a fun adventure so my number one top favorite musical of all time and this will tell you a lot about me, is White Christmas. So, Nick, have you seen White Christmas? Ooh, way back when, maybe. Way back when. Oh, good. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about White Christmas. So it is a film musical, for those of you who have not seen it, although it has since been adapted for the stage. And it came out in 1954. It was written for the screen by Norman Krasna, Norman Panama, and Melvin Frank. The music, of course, is by the iconic Irving Berlin. He wrote the original song, White Christmas, for uh, the 19... I believe it was 42. Yeah, the 1942 movie musical, Holiday Inn, also featuring Bing Crosby. So this movie, as I just said, stars Bing Bing Crosby, wow, Rosemary Clooney, Danny Kaye, and Vera Ellen. Vera Ellen, I think that name is very interesting. It's sort of like Madonna, but she needed two first names. And it's hyphenated, too. It's very interesting. <laughs> so this this movie, to me, was a really key part of my childhood. As I said, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house, and they loved 
Bing Crosby, Gene Kelly, all of those guys. They had all of their movies. And this is one that we just watched every year, no matter what time of the year it was. You could say, oh, let's pull out White Christmas and watch it. And they just loved it. Oddly enough, the song White Christmas was written by Irving Berlin. And he was a Russian immigrant who was Jewish. And he came up with probably the most iconic Christmas song, a particularly American Christmas song of all time. And I was reading uh, on NPR's website that actually he, he really accepted Christmas as an American holiday. He didn't necessarily celebrate it in a religious way, but it was for him, it was an American holiday. And so this was a really important song. Uh, Well, it became an important song later. The movie is directed by Michael Curtis, who is actually from Hungary. And um, you might have heard of him before because he directed a little film called Casablanca, among others. And this just, it was very interesting to me that this sort of perfect picture of what Christmas, the American Christmas is like, was really brought to life by two immigrants to America. And I think that that's a really important message. We are really the melting pot. And um, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Uh, one thing to point out before I tell you a little bit about the plot is there's a great little snippet from All Things Considered on NPR about the song White Christmas. It's kind of an old one. It's from uh, Christmas Day of 2000, but they actually get to interview one of Irving Berlin's daughters and she talks about kind of the genesis of the song and some other interesting things. And it's, it's a good listen. It's only about 12 minutes long. So go check it out. All things considered on NPR. So White Christmas is the story, Nick. It's the story of two wartime buddies, Bob Wallace and Phil Davis. They form a musical duo after Davis saves Wallace's life on the battlefield something that Davis never lets Wallace forget. Every time Wallace thinks, I'm going to leave this duo and go off and do my own thing, Davis grabs his elbow, which he injured in the war, and says, oh, it's okay, I'm sure the debt is repaid. And then Wallace stays. It's very funny, kind of a kind of a buddy comedy, buddy rom-com. So the pair make it big after the war. Eventually they become music producers. And their old war buddy asks them to go and watch his sisters perform in a sister act, his sisters Judy and Betty Haynes. The two men become absolutely smitten with these two beautiful blondes, and they follow them to Vermont, singing all the way, I might add, on a train uh, through to what they hope is a very snowy, beautiful wonderland. Uh, The sisters are booked at a Vermont inn where they are going to do a performance over the Christmas holidays. By chance, the inn is owned by their, the men's highly venerated former commanding officer, General Waverly. At the beginning of the movie, we see uh, Wallace and Davis taking part in a performance for the troops at the front line. And at the end of the performance, it really turns into a goodbye ceremony for General Waverly, who is being sent home from the war. And this is the moment when Davis saves Wallace's life. So back at the inn, in an effort to help Waverly save his failing business, Wallace and Davis bring their entire gigantic production crew up to the inn and host a giant Christmas musical show in Waverly's honor. In the end, each guy gets the girl of his dreams, and the whole cast sings Irving Berlin's iconic White Christmas as snow falls heavily outside. Yeah, it's a really it's a really fun musical. It's a it's a feel good musical, and it is um, 
it's kind of it's it's a musical based on one particular composer. So they essentially said, we have all of these good songs that you've written. Let's put them together in a musical. So it's it's kind of perfect, actually, that there is a performance taking place in the musical because it ties together all these songs that really have absolutely nothing in common. Um, and yeah, so that's that's White Christmas. It was it was it's one of my childhood favorites. Okay, so I'm going to mix things up a little in every way here. Oh. So, first of all, I'm going to go from fifth to first. <gasps> oh, wow. And then I'm going to start with a absolute not classic, but, you know, a new modern classic. Ooh. So, we're going with my number five top favorite musical. And this is uh, one that's kind of changed things up in the last few years, and uh I think this is also what got Libby and I talking about musicals in the first place. And this is Hamilton. Yes. So uh, those that do not know, Hamilton is a a recent musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda that is almost entirely hip hop and rap based. Um, And I'm not a huge hip hop or rap guy, but it just does it so well. And the, the music has caught my attention so well that... I had to just buy the book and start reading it. And the funny thing was, as soon as I finished the book, Libby's like, I got you a gift. And she handed me this book. I'm like, that's a great book. I just finished it. So I think, so now it's sitting on my shelf and I'm slowly working my way through it. <laughs> uh, the book is Alexander Hamilton by uh, Ron Chernow. If you haven't read it, read it. It's great. And it also just puts the whole musical into context and shows you how grossly misrepresented the whole cast is. Um, it it shows Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, the main characters, in completely different lights, but it works way better with the music. Um, and it gives you a general idea of, of what's going on there. So the general premise behind this is Alexander Hamilton, as a young kid, is raised in the Caribbean. Uh, I believe in Nevis was uh, where he was raised. His uh, father ran away. His mother died. He lived with his uncle. His uncle died. He eventually started working for a shopkeep, and he, the community backed him, raised a bunch of funds, and sent him to New York City where he could progress and become a better person. Well, he does this and finds himself right in the middle of the revolution of America trying to split off and become its own country. And Alexander Hamilton, being a young and spunky lad, is very outspoken about this. And he has speaks to the crowds and to people, anyone he could see about how much he thinks this, uh, this needs to happen. And during his course of time there, he runs into Aaron Burr who is another young upstart, very smart, very rich. And he is has a very different opinion. He's a very go-with-the-flow type of guy. So his plan, the way he runs his life, is he just keeps his mouth shut. And with whoever has the most power, he just rolls with that and just tries to avoid conflict whenever possible. And he looks for the people with most power when there is conflict, tries to align himself the right way. This creates a major rift between the two, but they still kind of have a frenemy situation going on, keeping keeping uh, together, keeping their, you know, keeping close as they can. It creates a really interesting relationship throughout the whole book and throughout the whole musical because they're 
constantly, for some reason, coming together, despite, you know, even colonial America being fairly large, they, they tend to run in the same circles. So now Alexander Hamilton spends so much time developing this, he ends up marrying into a prominent family from New York. He develops relationships with not only his wife, but the uh, sister of his wife. Here's one of those major uh, riffs. The musical states that he had a bit of a, you know, love for his sister-in-law. In actuality, it looks like there was pretty much nothing there at all. They were just friends that liked to communicate. Uh, but it goes on and it creates some amazing songs between those two. Amazing. Libby is nodding her head. I think yes, she, she yes, it definitely there. does. I don't want to interrupt your flow, but I'm in total agreement. So it it creates this this great story about how he develops as a person, how he peaks as a human, how he falls after cheating on his wife, which did indeed happen. And surprisingly, not with her sister. Yeah, yeah, that's the odd thing. Um, how he was extorted and then how he had to prove that he the extortion money that came out of his account wasn't from ill dealings with the government by kind of just giving away that he had an affair. Really an interesting story there. I recommend you read the book again. Hey, and you know, if you're not that interested, you know, listen to the songs from the musical, go see the musical or, you know, any of that. And then read the cliff notes about the book. Exactly. There you go. It is also available on audiobook. I have both versions. It's very good. Yes. The great ending to this, well, great and sad is that his wife, Eliza, forgives him. They spend their time to redevelop their relationship. They raise a son who is very proud to be a Hamilton. And then he gets shot and killed. And this is a, a low point in their family. They pretty much fall off of politics altogether. Alexander Hamilton, being a politician by birth pretty much, now just settles away. They hide off into a small village. They don't talk with anyone until... Somebody convinces Hamilton that he again needs to help get back into government and to basically break the tie of who is going to be the next U.S. president. And guess what? His old frenemy, Aaron Burt, is on the race. And guess what? Alexander Hamilton, not a big fan. So when he convinces Congress that they should not um, get Burr into office... Burr then becomes vice president because, for some reason at that point, runner-up became vice president. Soon to change after that. And Aaron Burr takes great personal offense to this. And basically claims, your whole life you have tried to ruin my life. And you are a scoundrel. Let's duel. So, they, they do their thing. Alexander Hamilton really can't refute it. In fact, in his letters, he's like, you're going to have to spite, cite something more specific. There, there are so many countless. I Here, let me list some of them even. That was one of the funniest moments. And I think that's a true historical moment too in Absolute, his letters. Absolutely is. In his letters, this is all documented. Actually starts counting them out and says, you, you need to be more specific here. I've got to say that's just, I can kind of see Aaron Burr's point. That's a little bit annoying. Yeah, yeah. Alexander Hamilton, nothing if not cocky. So they load into large white rowboats as they would back then. They row across the uh, river from New York to New Jersey because at the time, New Jersey was kind of a lawless wasteland. (laughs) Fine. It's still a lawless wasteland. (laughs) Okay. So 
they're sitting there on this field, right on the, basically as close to New York as you can get. And Hamilton in old, his older age puts on his glasses, starts making sure he knows what to do. Um, it has been several years since the war at this time. He hasn't held a gun in a long time. He's going over it, making sure everything works right. And that's when he realizes that he's in the same spot that his son had dueled years before and where his son had died. And he's looking around. And this is where Aaron Burr starts to get a little nervous. Now, at the time, there was a common practice in dueling where honorable men would just shoot up into the air. And that was it. That just like, yes, our duel is good. But Aaron Burr gets pretty nervous because he sees him put on his glasses. He thinks he's trying to take good aim. He sees him really messing with the trigger like, oh, he wants to really know how to shoot me. And he's looking around like he knows where he wants to put my body. So that is very creepy, right? Yeah. So they take their spots, they turn, they f they face each other. Alexander Hamilton shoots up to the sky and gets shot in a, I believe, just shot right in the chest by Aaron Burr. Which, oddly enough, is kind of the way his son died too. It pretty, pretty much sure the his same son thing. also shot into the air and then was himself shot. Yep. And immediately they had a doctor on the site. They loaded him into this rowboat, rode him back to New York, and they pretty much said, you're a dead man, do what you can. They called the priest, they called his family, everything together, and he died. Now, the interesting thing about Aaron Burr here is, despite what they say in the musical, he didn't immediately reform and think himself a greater, you know, or remorseful about what he did. But later in life, he did say, if I had read more and if I had had better thoughts, I might have, you know, changed my mind. I might have not done this. But he he was still kind of an ass. He ended up running state to state as they were trying to convict him of this crime because dueling was illegal at the time, um, as it is, I believe, now. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, yeah. Um, and eventually just retired in shame and hiding away somewhere. Um, if I read the book again, I could probably tell you where. So that's that's Hamilton, and that's my number five. All right, Libby, go through number two. Oh, man. Well, see, we had to have a little bit of pre-discussion about our top favorites, and Hamilton was going to be my number five, but even a very tough race, I changed it out with something else. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was up there. Yes. And again, I would like to point out that Nick is the one who introduced me to Hamilton. I too said, no, I'm not really into hip hop and rap. I don't think I'm going to like this musical and I can't get enough of it. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting the way that they don't take race into account when they cast the musical and that sort of in an operatic way, they replace what would be dialogue or maybe recitative with rap. I thought that was a fascinating idea. So my number two favorite, if I can avoid tapping the microphone, apologies to everyone out there. My number two favorite musical is anything with Gene Kelly. Wow, that's specific. <laughs> I know, right? Actually, though, my number two specific favorite musical is Singing in the Rain. Again, thanks to my grandparents, whose vast VHS collection introduced this into my life. So this movie musical is from 1952. It stars Gene Kelly, of course, Donald O'Connor, and Debbie Reynolds. 
Now, while I was researching this, I thought it was really interesting because I had spent my entire life thinking that it was Danny Kaye in this musical, not Donald O'Connor, who plays Gene Kelly's buddy. And sure enough, when I went and looked, it was not. It was Donald O'Connor. But they, the two men, look very similar. And as a child, I just assumed they were the same person. So that was a, an interesting uh, thing to learn as an adult. So the premise of this movie is that Gene Kelly, or Don Lockwood, as he's known in the film, uh, is a silent film star, and he is forced by the powerful 1920s Hollywood studios to pretend to have a love affair with his beautiful but otherwise repugnant and ditzy co-star, Lena Lamont. And if you watch the movie, you really, she's just grating. She just really gets on your nerves. By chance, Dawn meets actress, in quotations, actress, Kathy Selden. She belittles him and yet somehow captivates him. She makes fun of him for not really being a real actor. How can you be a real actor if you're in a silent film? Acting is about all aspects of theater, about singing and, and talking and expression. And how can you express if there's no sound? After they part ways, because um, Dawn has climbed into her car and she thinks she's being carjacked. So after she drops him off, uh, Dawn spends the next few weeks trying to figure out where she went and who she is. And he searches through the stars of the screen and stage and tries to figure out who is this mystery girl. And then at a studio party, she pops out of a cake. And it's just, I mean, yeah, it's here she is. She's actually a chorus girl. I know, burn. Miss High and Mighty is actually a chorus girl. So when the studio head announces that they're going to start making talking pictures rather than silent films, Don and his vaudeville partner and best friend, Cosmo Brown, not Danny Kaye, Donald O'Connor, they concoct a scheme to have Kathy, who conveniently has a beautiful voice, dub over all of Lena Lamont's scenes, because listening to Lena's voice is rather like having your ears worked over with a cheese grater. It's really quite stunning. So Kathy goes and dubs all of Lena's lines, all of her singing in the film, and it causes no end of hilarity because Lena is very easily offended and actually doesn't know that her voice is going to be dubbed. So there's a a couple of funny scenes, one in particular where she's working with a voice coach to try to get her voice to not sound horrible and uh, to tame her accent, all of these things. And uh, anyway, she gets very angry. And in the end, Kathy's feelings are terribly hurt. She runs off the stage. Lena has just embarrassed her. And then Dawn embarrasses her. But in the end, it all works out. Dawn and Kathy get together and they star in their own film, Singing in the Rain. Oh, what a coincidence. I know. How funny, right? So this musical kind of captivated me as a kid because it was, again, it's a musical where they have some pre-designated songs that they put together and they go, oh, perfect. We'll make a show out of these. Most of them are not related in any way. Some of the titles are Fit as a Fiddle and Ready for Love, which is hilarious to watch. Um, Singing in the Rain, of course make them laugh. And there's this really interesting montage called Beautiful Girl, which goes through a whole bunch of different songs. 
the majority of these songs were taken from movie musicals or stage musicals of the 1920s and 1930s and put together. So like with White Christmas, in the middle of Singing in the Rain, there is this giant performance. Um, in this case, it's all taking place kind of in Don and Kathy's head. And uh, they go through the beautiful girl montage and all of these things. And um, they essentially string together these great songs to a loosely fitting plot. The plot is sort of important, but not really. It's more about the songs. As it was with all these musicals, really. Well, but some of them are really story driven. This one's not so much. It's just convenient. They make it convenient. Um, so I would say that this, like White Christmas, is kind of a review musical. So yeah, that's my number two. What's your number four, Nick? Okay, so my number four, little controversial because it's a movie musical that's newer. It's not a classic. Actually, it is a classic because it's a remake of a classic. And remakes, no one likes a remake, except for the new Beauty and the Beast. Oh, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to say... I'm a huge Disney fan, grew up with Disney movies, loved the original Beauty and the Beast, even before I was a big music nerd. But since becoming a large music nerd, um, both figuratively and uh, physically, um, I, I found that this is the best remake I have ever seen of any musical. And I think a big part of it is that Emma Watson is an amazing singer. They took the the story and they improved on it in little ways that made it so much better little bits of humor little uh tidbits of things in there that changed it and then they the guy they got to to be the beast dan stevens who is an actor but not really a singer spent so much time practicing that he had the most amazing song in the whole movie so much so that um as they do in many uh, movie musicals, he sang a version of Evermore and then Josh Groban sang a version of Evermore. That's a pretty big compliment. Yeah. And Josh Groban sounded like crap compared really? to Dan I'm Stevens. Really? I'm going to have to go listen to this now. Yeah. It, it really just didn't even compare. Whenever I hear the Josh Groban version come on, I just have to switch back to the Dan Stevens version. So the music in the movie itself is amazing. The the soundtrack versions, I believe it had uh, Celine Dion and Josh Groban both in there. Um, so they got some top names in there, but the music in the movie, I think, just beat it hands down. Now, there's a couple other tidbits here. Now, I'm not going to go explain the whole plot of the movie. I think pretty much everyone here has seen Beauty and the Beast. But there's a couple of things that I loved about this. And mostly, there's just a couple of little lines that th they threw in there. So right in the first scene, Belle's going around talking about the little town and how it's all the same. And she goes up to the baker. And as soon as they, this line hit, I'm like, that's Neville Longbottom from Harry Potter. <laughs> goes up to the baker and says, have you lost something again? And the most classic Neville reply ever. Well, I believe I have. Problem is, I can't remember what. <laughs> That is totally Neville. Absolutely Neville. So I, I, for the next five minutes, the first time I saw it, I just couldn't get out of my hand. They just threw Neville in there. That's amazing. And I missed the rest. But luckily, <laughs> I've seen the movie many, many more times since then. And the next favorite line that they threw in there was a, a little tit for tat between Gaston and Le Fou. 
And Gaston's trying to talk about how much he needs Belle and Belle will be his wife and all that. And he says, yes, but ever since the war, I felt like I've been missing something. And she's the only girl that gives me that sense of... And LeFou jumps and says, hmm, je ne sais quoi? Gaston, I don't know what that means. (laughs) This is so hilarious because this is a French story set in France. And that is a French phrase. And that's just a little play on words that I think was just so perfect. The only thing that made that even better was that when I was online, just looking up exactly what the lines were there, there were people online that honestly thought Disney made a mistake. That Really? Yes. Like, it's French. What do they think? How would he not know this? Just honestly offended that Disney. And I, I just, that made it so much better that people. Wow. So that. That wow. had been one of my favorite lines in the movie got that much better just because of that. I love it. Okay. Short and sweet. Let's move on to uh, number three with Libby. Beauty and the Beast was was great. That was a good one. So I think that Nick and my number three might actually be the same. That's true. That's true. Should we say it at the same time? Okay. Rent. Rent. <laughs> So I'm actually going to make Nick read what he wrote down for the plot description of Rent before I talk about it because it's just freaking hilarious. Short and sweet. So many drama queens, never really talking about anything but singing about them instead, but it has a huge diversity in songs and people. Yeah. See, I just, I thought that was great. I thought that was a really good description. So many drama queens. I know, right? But you just got to love all of them. Although I... Recently, I've developed a couple of issues with with one particular drama queen, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so Rent, probably most of you know Rent. It's uh, it came hit Broadway in 1996 with Jonathan Larson as the main composer, lyricist, and librettist. He had some early collaboration with Billy Aronson. Ar- Aronson, yes, probably that. For me, I first heard Rent when I went to New York in 2008. I was on my way to do my master's degree, and I was staying with my friend Carrie and her family. Hi, Carrie! And we tried to get tickets to go to Rent. And we didn't know this, but it was its last season on Broadway. It, yeah, we had no idea that that was, or I guess it was 2007. It was 2007. 2008 was the year it went off Broadway. So we stood outside the theater and we got our little lottery tickets and we tried to get tickets to the show. We did not get tickets to the show. Did you know they actually pioneered the lottery ticket for Broadway system? I did not know yep, that. Yep, Rent was the one that started that. Oh, see, that's really interesting. I had no clue. Well, we played and we lost. <laughs> but we did get to go see Phantom of the Opera, which was really fun. Uh, although I will say it was, I think it was a Thursday or a Monday. It was some weird day and it was not the main cast. But they were still great anyway. Um, and even from Row XX, it was wonderful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we went to that instead. And then we went back to Carrie's house and we watched the movie, which had just come out. I believe it was 2005 that the movie came out. And I literally could not take my eyes off the screen. Her wonderful parents had treated us to Broadway tickets and they were trying to ask me about what I thought of the show. How did you like Phantom of the Opera? I remember like not even being able to peel my eyes away from the screen. She's like, yeah, it was so great. 
watching <laughs> Rent. Sorry. And they just, and it was on TV. So at that time we couldn't pause it and we were just, we were watching it and I was like trying to to talk and pay attention and I was just absolutely captivated. So I went home and bought the DVD and watched all the extras. And yeah, do you know some of the backstory to Jonathan uh, Larson's life? Have you watched the extras on the Rent DVD? You know, I haven't owned a DVD in like a decade, so oh, I can't say that. come on. Now you're really making me feel old. I'm only one year older than you. <laughs> it's, it's enough. Um, <laughs> so I, I highly recommend that you guys get the DVD and go watch the extras because... Uh, so Jonathan Larson was living in New York in the late 80s and early 90s during the height of the AIDS crisis. And while Alphabet City was in absolute uproar, and uh, if you ever want to see a very compelling, read a very compelling true story, go and check out information on um, people being kicked out of Alphabet City. It was essentially like a war was started in New York. It was crazy. Um, so... He worked and worked and worked on this musical. He finished it and then spent years workshopping it. And on opening, or it was the it was the final dress rehearsal. They had invited a critic from the New York Times to come and review the musical. And Jonathan Larson sat down and did an interview with the guy. And it was great. It was his you know his first interview with the New York Times. That night he died of um, an aneurysm. I think it was an aortic aneurysm. That was totally undiagnosed. Nobody knew it was going to happen. And so for opening night of the show, the cast stood or sat and did not block the show at all and just sang it and cried all the way through. And you watch the extras and it's just, oh, it's just heart-wrenching. You just, you just wish you could go and say, oh, you might have, I think it's Marfan's disease. You know, you might have this disease and it, it could kill you. It's going to kill you. You need to get help. And, uh, yeah, Jonathan Larson never really got to see his show, uh, in all of its glory. It won a Tony, it won a Pulitzer, and it was one of the longest running shows on Broadway. So it's just incredibly sad. He brought this amazing musical into being and then died and he was really young. I don't know exactly how young, but I think in his twenties or thirties, he was very young. Um, yeah. So... What else did you want to say about this? I have a couple more tidbits, but... So that was actually one that I had on my list as well about him never getting to see his show come to fruition there. But one of the really cool things is when Rent was in its like opening rough draft phases there, just starting to show people to what it was like. One of the original producers, they came, or a couple of them, they came and they watched the show. And at the end of the first act, Light My Candle came on, and they were blown away. So at intermission, they went back and said, we want to fund your show. And the reply was, do you want to see the second act? <laughs> I think that's a fair question. <laughs> yeah. So it was funded before the second act even began. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. that That's one of the coolest things. And I mean, when you sit there and you listen to Light My Candle, you could you kind of get it. That's funny, though. That wouldn't be the song that I would peg to be like, yes, this is it. But Mind you, this was still a rough draft. So the story wasn't actually fully intact there. It kind of jumped around a bit. The uh, The producers couldn't really follow what was going on, but they were still enthralled by it. They, they loved the, the whole sound and the feeling of it, but they didn't actually know what was going on. But they knew a good thing when they saw it. Yeah. It was a diamond in the rough. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Any other fun tidbits? You know, I think uh, I think that's all I had on this one. Okay. Well, I think most of you know the know the plot, the the group of friends uh, who are 
living in Alphabet City in New York in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, it's basically a year in their life as they deal with AIDS and uh, having unsanctioned love, uh, love between a woman and a woman and a man and a man, and uh, with transvestism and like that's how you say that word, uh, all of these things and just basically figuring out how to actually live in love despite what life throws at you. Um, and it's, it's based on La Boheme by Puccini, but instead of tuberculosis, the disease that's uh, wiping them all out is AIDS. So really interesting movie, my or musical and movie. My one problem, which for some reason didn't occur to me until like a decade after I'd first watched Rent, was Angel, who's always been one of my favorite characters, kills a dog in the opening of the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? And it wasn't until... So Nick and I both had two... Nick had a very precious orange cat named Taj, and I had a very precious black and white cat named Big Boy, and they both died right around the same time last year. And it wasn't until that happened that all of a sudden... I was listening to Angel's big song and I'm like, this is terrible. You're singing about murdering, causing a dog to commit suicide by jumping off a multi-story building. And that changed my whole perception of Angel's character. Great. Now you ruined Rent for me. Oh no, I've ruined Rent. But yeah, so that was that was my, um, that's my only real big qualm with Rent. Is, okay, yeah. now I got to cheer you up a little. There okay. is one more thing I, I forgot to. Okay, what's your, what's your one so, more thing? For there's that great line in there. It says, "Hey, I hear Spike Lee's filming a sh- uh, a movie down the street." Turns out he was actually slated to produce Rent for a long time before they sw- swapped it up. Oh my gosh! So maybe they were just jabbing. At it him? was that was exactly it. It was just a little jab. <laughs> that is hilarious. Okay, that does make me feel a little better. Okay, we I had to change that. I mean, try to ruin Rent for me, Libby. How right? dare you? I know. Well, don't don't worry. I'm going to try to ruin another one for you. Nick, I think it should be your turn. What's your uh, number? Are you on number two? I'm on to number two number now. Number two. Yes, I, I can't glazed count. over number three or combined it or something. Okay. So we're going to number two, which is the ultimate classic, <gasps> Les Miserables. Oh, perfect. Which I still have not seen. It's on our list to watch. I'm, I I've read the book. Take great offense to that. And also, I don't know how you can read that monstrosity of a book. Not bad just massively huge i read it at 16 yeah that's the type of geek that she is yes that's true. Um, i i have started reading it and after several several hours i've gotten through the first description of the priest at the beginning and if <laughs> if you've seen the movie you know the priest takes up all of like 30 seconds of the beginning of the movie that's so. a good taster of how the even though i think the movie is fairly long it is very short compared to the book yes now, I will say the descriptions in the book are amazing and you have a feel for every single character and who they truly are. Honestly enough, you have less of a feel for the main character. Yeah. They, all the descriptions of all the side characters are so much better. And I honestly don't blame them. So here's my bit of controversy that I'm going to start right away with, with Les Mis. I love Javert. Not only is he my favorite character, I love Russell Crowe singing as Javert. And I have had many a friend threaten to punch me right in the face for saying such a thing. Really? I love Russell Crowe. I, I absolutely love the way Russell Crowe sings, and I think it's a great Javert. And uh, it's, I think it's a point of controversy that I stick to my bones by. So quick, quick little rundown of Les Mis. 
I think it means the miserable. The wretched, the, the miserable. The wretched, the miserable, totally. something like yeah. that. And it's a story about how one person named Jean Valjean um, spent his life. He he lived uh, taking care of his sister. They were poor. They had no food. He broke into uh, into a bakery to steal a loaf of bread. He was caught. He was sentenced to life of hard labor. While he was in hard labor, he tried to escape several times. And he got more hard labor. So after a very, very long time working on the ships, he got released. And it it's the story of how he developed his life after that point. How he eventually just changed who he was. Changed his name. Slipped out. He was no longer Jean Valjean. He became a mayor, a businessman. He raised a, a dying woman's uh, daughter. And it, and it tells the... The story of how he becomes a leader in a in a political revolt in Paris, mind you, they call it the French Revolution. It's not the French Revolution; it's the Paris Revolt. So, just a little different. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I don't know why you would think it's the French Revolution. Just who is this? The French Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> so, really, really great musical. Like Libby said, it is terribly long, but the music just will capture you, and it's. The mood of the music changes throughout. Although nothing is particularly happy throughout the movie. Probably... That does match the book. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because there's not much sunshine through the book. Yeah, but it goes from sad to dreary to downtrodden. You know, there's a lot of variety yeah, there. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Good variety is the spice of life. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the, the really interesting part. Now, the, the funny thing is... The the one that caught my attention most is when this movie came out, the last movie here, Anne Hathaway was just all over the promotions for it. And I'm like, okay, we're going to see Anne Hathaway. I love Anne Hathaway. She's such a great actor. And, you know, I didn't know much about her singing, but she great actor. And go in there. And she dies two minutes into the movie mm-hmm. with a little 30-second reprise right at the end. Like, really? Really, Anne Hathaway? That much, that that much was, promotion? That was huh? it, yeah. But, uh... Well, I do know that apparently even just her little time in the film, um, obviously I haven't I haven't seen it, but uh, there's one scene where she is singing a solo and I believe she might be in prison or maybe, uh, anyway, I haven't seen it. She's, she's not in a good spot. And they apparently made her sing it over and over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, just many, many, many times until she almost couldn't sing anymore. And they're like, perfect. Now you are the right amount of distressed. Yeah. And just, you know, forced prostitution is where she was at. Oh, is that where it was? Yeah. It's been a tiny bit of time since I've read the book. Yes. So yes. Yeah. Now, uh, the, uh, now I will say besides um, Javert, the, my favorite singer in the whole movie is uh, the actress, and I can't remember her name, but she plays uh, Corsette. Oh, nice. And um, it's the innkeeper's uh, daughter, and she's kind of lived this weird life, and she parallels the, uh, the daughter of Anne Hathaway throughout the movie, and they've kind of become head-to-head, and they have this uh, interest in the same guy. And interestingly enough, she's the only one that came over from Broadway to the movie. Oh, interesting. And I didn't know that until one day I was talking with my uh, former roommate and I said, hey, she is by far the best singer. And he's like, yeah, she came from Broadway. She's from Broadway. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) That I I thought, like, okay, that that makes absolute perfect sense. Not a big name, but just blow you away singer there. 
Yeah. So we, Nick and I had talked about uh, if we were going to do a season of podcasts on musicals, that perhaps we would read the Les Mis book together and then at the end of the season watch Les Mis and let you all know what I think because I haven't seen it. Nick could reiterate how much he loves it. Um, but and what he thinks of the book. Are we are we still on for that? Or have you given up on the book? I haven't given up on the book. But it turns out that it's number three on my list of books to read, even though I've already started it. <gasps> Dang it. But the good news is I have read a book's worth of that book. So I've gotten through like the first three chapters. Perfect. That's yeah. great. You're only, you're already like one twentieth of the way there. It's it's totally fine. Exactly. Victor yeah. Hugo was not known for brevity. No, no. Although The Hunchback of Notre Dame was fairly short. That's actually my favorite book of all time, oh. which is funny because I'm a pretty upbeat person. And if you want to talk about unhappy, downtrodden people who don't get what they want in the world, Hunchback's your book. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on, I believe, to your number four, Libby. Ooh, okay, so this is another one uh, that I'm going to ruin for you. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, this one is Dear Evan Hansen, which is just, I think it was my friend Amy who introduced me to this one. I'm trying to remember. Shout out to Amy. Hi, Amy and Brandon. Yeah, and I, I do love this. This almost made my lesson of this. My friend Jenny went and saw this before I ever heard of it and got me hooked on the soundtrack yeah no we have had a couple of uh karaoke nights at nick's house and um i'm just pretty sure that the character of zoe was written for my vocal range specifically so uh she's my character uh yeah so dear evan hansen is it's a really interesting contemporary musical that actually tries to deal with a kind of beefy subject a lot of times i think musicals you go and you're like, yay, this is so fun. I get to forget my real life and don't have to think about people's problems. Obviously, Les Mis is not one of those. Uh, <laughs> but you get to kind of escape for a little while. And Evan, Dear Evan Hansen is not one of those musicals. It, it deals with modern subjects like social anxiety and depression, particularly in kids, which is not and suicide, which is not something that really anybody wants to dwell on for very long. It's not a very happy topic. Um, it came out in 2015, so when it came to Broadway, and it has music and lyrics by Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. So the original Broadway cast starred Ben Platt and Laura Dreyfus as uh, Evan Hansen and Zoe. Gosh, I can't even remember what Zoe's last name is, but Zoe Murphy. I think it's Murphy. Zoe Murphy. Um, so the story is basically about Evan, who is a teenage boy with social anxiety and depression. He starts out with his arm in a cast. He's fallen out of a tree. But there are some pretty strong suggestions that perhaps he was trying to kill himself. So not super happy. Uh, he comes from a broken home and has a really contentious relationship with his mom, which makes him feel like he doesn't fit in at home. And when he goes to school, he doesn't really have any friends, so he doesn't fit in at school either. He has a crush on Zoe, and there is a great song waving through a window where he's kind of trying to get her attention. Um, and I will say, I have not actually seen Dear Evan Hansen. Have you seen it, Nick? I have not. Just yeah. heard the soundtrack so many times. So many times. Yeah. So uh, hopefully I'm getting all of these facts right. It is actually going to be in Portland at the end of this month, beginning of next month. Uh, I don't think I'm going to make it, but I keep trying to talk Nate into driving down to Portland for one night and see a show and driving back. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that'll go well. And you know what? Convince my three bosses and I might be able to make it. Awesome. Yes, I, I think that's a great plan. I will contact your bosses right now. Uh, yes, so would love to go see it. So Evan has a crush on Zoe and her brother Connor is also dealing with depression, but in a very different way from Evan, he is uh, smoking pot and bullying other kids, one of whom is Evan himself. So Evan's therapist suggests that he starts writing letters to himself about how his life's going to improve, things that he's dealing with. It's sort of a way to do a diary, but uh, it kind of makes it, uh, bumps it up, you know, makes it positive. Talk about the positive things in his life. So he writes this letter, Dear Evan Hansen, blah, 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 blah. Well, Connor finds the letter and his sister Zoe is mentioned in it and he thinks that Evan is making fun of him. And so he takes the letter and ends up committing suicide. And the letter is found in his pocket. And so somehow this causes Evan and his couple of kind of friends that he has to go on this crusade. They start a uh, Facebook page and a campaign to honor Connor's memory. And Evan starts spinning these stories that he and Connor were actually very good friends. Partially this happens because he wants to get close to Zoe and partially because he wants to get close to her seemingly perfect family. So through this whole chain of events, Evan ends up alienating the friends he does have. He alienates his mom. He lies to Zoe and her family and they, he and Zoe start dating. It's kind of a weird premise to be totally honest. Um, and in the end, it's discovered that Evan has lied. He and Zoe part ways and, um, kind of life sort of goes back to normal. He and his mom make up. So the story, it deals with some really hard topics. And I think that Overall, it's it's really good. I think these things need to be talked about on stage. And the music is just, I mean, it's just stunning. It's absolutely gorgeous. And um, there's so many songs. You know, a lot of times you listen to a soundtrack and you, you know, you listen to song one, you skip songs two and three, and then you listen to song four. This one, I think there's maybe one song that I skip when I listen to it. Um, all the rest of them are just absolutely gorgeous. Could listen to them forever. So... While I was researching this, I found an article that uh, was from The New Yorker, and it talked about and kind of voiced some of the problems that I have with this musical as much as I love it. And it's titled Pop Psychology on Stage in Dear Evan Hansen. And so the author, Hilton Alls, this is from December of 2016, he was captivated by the first act. He thought it was fantastic. They're bringing up great issues. This is really great. And he particularly liked Ben Platt's performance. He thought he was just amazing as Evan Hansen. By the second half, he's like, you know, there's some major problems with the psychology that's presented in this musical. And the idea that you can just sort of stop, you can, you can change yourself greatly and, um, you can hurt all of these people that are dear to you like Evan does and still be the hero. He basically, by the end, he thinks that Evan Hansen is actually the villain because he's lied to all his friends. He's lied to his family. He's lied to himself. And he just, you know, he's he thinks he's actually kind of a little punk. Um, and anyway, it's a very interesting read. You can find it online. And he just kind of talks about how he wishes that they had used actual some actual psychology in it rather than what he calls pop psychology and dug a little deeper into why Evan turned out to be such an asshole. <laughs> that is actually 
kind of a valid, interesting thing. I've never thought of that, but yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for ruining Dear Evan Hansen for me, Libby. You're welcome. You're so welcome. I When I first started listening to this, I listened to the first two or three songs and I was just hooked. And then by the time I actually did listen to the whole soundtrack, I was like, Evan's a little bit of a jerk. Like, I think we've all been there. We've all wanted that perfect world and we've all been, you know, kind of, he's sort of trapped in a web of his own lies. But uh, anyway, really great musical, well worth seeing. I absolutely love it tiny little problem yeah now i will say too when i saw that it was ben platt that was uh singing as dear evan hansen i was first thing was who is this that sounds really familiar and then i realized oh it's benji from pitch perfect oh my gosh i've never seen pitch perfect um and which is like the ultimate nerdy you know singer guy in pitch perfect and it just very different character but from then i'm like now i can't get the image of benji you know doing all this singing about depression and stuff it's a it's a very different character but i love it and now it's forever stuck in my head i think we have to add pitch perfect to our list to watch i i have no problem with that um that that's one movie that uh when i lived in olympia i had seven roommates all guys and we watched pitch perfect at least weekly if not twice a week that's awesome yeah and then when the second one came out we all watched it in theaters yes I wish I had been part of that crew. That would have been very fun. Yeah. Funny thing is, not all music nerds just love the movie. Awesome. Okay. All right. I'm going to my number one. (gasps) And there is no way you can ruin this upbeat, happy, magical musical for me. I can try. It is the most outstanding musical because of tradition. (laughs) Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, I can't ruin that one for you. I haven't actually seen Fiddler on the Roof. And that's a correction we're going to need to make like right now. We My mom has performed this. in it multiple times, but I've never seen it. I've, I've, no, I've only seen it in the movie and as a stage show by a children's theater. And they did great. That just seems odd. That just seems odd. Not the strangest uh, children's theater one I've seen, but yes, yeah, a little odd. Now, little summary since I've, Libby since I've hasn't never seen actually it. seen mm-hmm. Fiddler on the Roof. It's it's about uh, the plight of Russian Jews in a little town in Russia, and basically how the communist government is just oppressing them, how they're trying to stick to, to their traditions, and how to keep their culture and their religion alive. And throughout the uh, plot of the film. The uh, main character finds that his daughters are slowly slipping from that tradition. His eldest daughter uh, doesn't want to conform to what a matchmaker has assigned and falls in love with uh, a local boy from the village. And one of his younger daughters uh, falls in love with a Russian. And this creates a great rift in their family. And then amongst that, they get kicked out of their village and all the Jews are forced out of Russia. So, yeah, that's that's basically the story of being a Jew. Unfortunately, that's, you're kicked out of somewhere. That's exactly it. They mm-hmm. went from humble means to, no, we don't want you here at all Ugh, anymore. That's unfortunate. But what makes this musical amazing is, first of all, the music. It's timeless. Uh, it's been going on forever, and the music never gets old. And second of all is... That even though it's telling an old story, it's one that 
you can constantly relate to that constantly will conform and change to what's going on now. We all have traditions. We all have things that we have been doing forever and people are going to change that. And the best thing you could do is continue to show love despite them not doing what you want, but being able to embrace them for who they are and being able to continually show love. It took, it took the family a while for them to adapt in, in uh, Fiddler here, but at the end, they were still a family divided, separate in different towns, but there was still that love for each other. And you don't really see that till the very last scene where he finally accepts it. Now, Libby, I'm going to have to make a correction here because we're going to go watch it. Then you're going to be stuck listening to the music for at least a month. It's another earworm. Yes. Yes. Um, And then every time I say tradition, you're going to throw up your hands and tradition. (laughs) I'm I'm excited about this. And then I'll go to work and throw up my hands and go tradition. And they'll look at me like, who are you? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But this is by far my number one favorite musical i'm i'm just scouring at libby right now i'm just ashamed that she hasn't seen it and that's something we're gonna fix very very soon this might jeopardize our friendship just a little just a little okay all right all right should i do my number five let's go to your number five okay well before we do that i brought you something to look at so my favorite my fifth favorite musical and this is one i was just recently introduced to is Shrek the Musical. Nick, have you seen the children's book that Shrek is based off of? I have not. Well, guess what? You're about to. No way. I found it in our local secondhand bookstore, Serendipity. And it is the story of an ogre who was so ugly and so stinky and shot lasers out of his eyes and breathed fire. And he gets kicked out and he goes on this grand adventure with a talking donkey to kind of rescue a princess. He basically makes this knight that is, quote unquote, guarding the princess like he lights him on fire with his laser eyes. And then he gets to this princess who, guess what, is also hideously ugly. And they fall in love and they get married. The end. Some of you may recognize most parts of this story. Uh, from the film uh, that came out in 2001 and then subsequently had three more films that came out. Um, I'm pretty sure there were four of them. Four? Three? At at least three. At least three. God, I own them all and I love them. They're some of my most favorite movies ever and I should know. Uh, Anyway, so they made it into a musical which premiered in 2008 on Broadway um, and then was put out in a high-definition film, a Broadway production, in 2013. So what you may or may not know about San Juan Island is we call it The Rock. We literally are fairly isolated here, and uh, we we don't routinely get to go to the theater, the big theater, um, off-island, as we say. And so uh, most of the time, if we see a musical, it's in some recorded form. So when this came on Netflix, I was like, oh, yeah, this is super cool. So loved it, thought it was great. Uh, the original Broadway cast starred Brian Darcy James as Shrek and Sutton Foster as Fiona, who is amazing. She's great. So the, the musical follows basically the same story as the movie. 
and uh, Shrek gets his uh, gets his castle or not his castle his swamp uh invaded by fairy tale creatures he then goes on a quest to see lord farquad to get them removed and ends up going on another quest with this talking donkey who has sort of attached himself to shrek um to rescue princess fiona princess fiona is a princess by day and an ogre by night because she was cursed and she can only take love's true form when she has love's true kiss loves one kiss so she thinks she's going off to marry farquad and in the course of their trip back to his castle she actually falls in love with shrek and shrek falls in love with her and it's a great story um essentially the moral is that love can't really be defined by a fairy tale or a storybook and that you kind of have to make your own um to make your own story and that everybody no matter what they look like or what they what who they are deserves to be loved great story right real fun yes and on that i just thumbed through this book that you handed me and i found the best line i'm ready okay said the princess your nose is so hairy oh let us not tarry your look is so scary i think we should marry (laughs) see right it was love at first sight exactly so that is from shrek by william steeg um which is a book from a children's book from 1990 there are some actually really hilarious lines in there um i highly recommend everybody read the book um yeah so i loved the movies you've seen the movies i assume oh yes yes of course have you seen the musical on netflix i have not you have not oh my gosh well it's gone now too late (sighs) we'll have to buy it okay so we'll watch les mis and i will be educated and we'll watch shrek and you will be educated sounds like a plan okay so The only problem that I have with the musical is that in the movies, Fiona is, you know, along the trip, she's proving herself to be kind of a badass, right? Like she was locked in this tower for 20 years. What was she going to do? She learned karate. (laughs) Because what else are you going to do? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So she's kind of a badass. But in the musical, they take out the scene where she kicks butt and defeats Robin Hood and his merry men who are actually kind of psychopathic. And um, yeah, they take that out. So they, they kind of, to me, it really feels like Shrek is the main character more in the musical than he is in the movies and that they sort of deplete uh, Fiona's part, which is a little interesting. Um, the other thing is that when they transfer the movie to become a musical, uh, you see a little bit more donkey's roots in black minstrelsy, which uh, I don't know how much you've read about minstrelsy, Nick. A lot? Not not a lot. Not a lot? <laughs> yeah. Well, I won't go into detail here, but there are definitely elements. We've, we've thought about doing this play here in Friday Harbor. And my one thought in our mostly white community is, how are you going to handle a part that is very clearly a black man, a black minstrelsy role? How are you going to handle that if you can't find someone to fill that role in that way? Um, and it really kind of got me thinking about, while I absolutely love this story, I absolutely love Eddie Murphy's comedy, uh, all of these things, it's definitely has its roots in black minstrelsy, which is a little uncomfortable. But it is absolutely my, I just, I love it, love the movies, love the kids book, love the musical. Okay, now, I do have to ask, in the musical, does it heavily feature Smash Mouth? <laughs> Excellent question. And uh, the answer is, at the end, 
all of the characters sing the Smash Mouth song. Okay. Yes. Amazing. That's that's you, you won me over right there. Yeah, it's it's great. And it is really an awesome musical. My most favorite line in the musical comes from the opening where Shrek's parents are sending him off at the ripe old age of seven to make his way in the world. And his mom says to him, watch out for men with pitchforks. <laughs> She's just told him, you're, you know, I packed you a sandwich. You know, you're, you, we packed your snow boots. Watch out for men with pitchforks. You know, as you tell your children, as you hurry them out the door in the morning. Yeah, naturally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's our, those are our top musicals now. Now you know a little bit more about us. Yeah. Now, I think we have a couple of honorable mentions, and mm-hmm. we won't go in as in-depth with them. But uh, so for me, my the one honorable mention I want to add here that was very nearly on my top five was that very musical that Libby saw that was very much outshone by Rent, and that's uh, Phantom of the Opera. Now, this one... Actually, I was surprised that wasn't on your list, actually. It was so very close. And uh, truthfully, it was actually the first musical I ever saw in, in a theater live. Oh, wow. Where'd so you see it? I saw it at the Paramount in Seattle. Oh, fun. Um, as part of a school trip, and I was blown away. I thought it was so amazing. And then the movie came out, and it was pretty good but i still love the stage show way better have you seen any other staged musicals like in in broadway style productions no i haven't wow that's cool so both of our first ones was phantom of the opera uh, very cool yeah yeah so and um and and my other honorable mention is actually one that i think uh libby had on her list too that made a, a close one was hairspray hairspray oh so good so great great talent great singing told a great story now i've seen that one live Jeez, you're just like trying to outshow me here. I am. There are actually some benefits to living in the middle of nowhere. Um, I lived in Montana for a little while, and there was a touring Broadway company that came to Montana, and they did Hairspray. That's the weirdest thing to ever go through Montana. Uh, yes, it was. It was. They set up a stage in part of a gym, and there you go. Okay. Any other ones on your honorable mention um, I list? I think those are those are the two I had. You got any uh, for us there? I do. I actually have four or five. Uh, Hamilton, of course, the wonderful Hamilton. Uh, Brigadoon, gotta love that one. Have you seen Brigadoon? I haven't. Oh, amazing. Uh, Once, which is a great musical about an Irish singer. It's very different. It's very raw for a musical. Uh, you haven't seen that one either? I haven't even heard of that one, okay, actually. adding that to the list. Okay. Uh, Hairspray, of course. Yeah. And then The Last Five Years. And the only reason that The Last Five Years didn't make my list is because it is so sad that I cannot watch it more than once a year or I just get horribly depressed. I That was one that I tried to watch and it just could not get me into it. So I... I it's a tough one. Several times got about 20 minutes into it. I'm like, eh, I'm done. Well, and it's... Uh, there, I found myself multiple times, and I've only seen the movie version, but watching the movie version and going, you know, you could have made a different choice there. <laughs> this is the part where you just get a divorce. <laughs> I hate to be cruel, but it's just right here. You should just get a divorce. I'm sorry. So yeah, I, I absolutely love that musical, but there are definitely a few times where you they could have made different choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Nick, what's on your playlist right now? What are you listening to? Okay, so... First of all, I have both a diverse musical uh, repertoire, and I listen to things to death over and over and over again. Your poor wife. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> At she... least I wear headphones most of the time. 
yeah, she's she's not a big fan. I'll be sitting in my office. I do video editing and I'll just have the same album on repeat. Um, so recently, just a couple months ago, uh, my wife, myself, Libby and her husband all got to go, um, as she mentioned earlier, to see Sarah Bareilles. Yay! And it heavily featured her newest album, which I hadn't heard much of. Which we were all shocked by. Yes. So I've been playing that album on repeat for a couple months. I think I'm just about out of that. Um and at work, my coworkers and I have for some reason got onto movie soundtracks. So we've just been going through movie soundtracks like crazy. So of course, Beauty and the Beast is on there. But then I, I realized that while I had heard, I never really fully embraced the soundtrack that is Tarzan by Phil Collins. Oh, one of my favorites. So good. It's so amazing. So and you said you haven't seen the movie? I, I've seen parts of the movie. Okay, I've we're adding s- that to our list too. Never seen it fully through. I've seen the movie. I played the video game. I've Oh, I love it. Yeah, such a great soundtrack. And then another recent one that I had never actually seen the movie until about two weeks ago was Prince of Egypt. And yes. such a great soundtrack. And the one that actually got me into that was I came across a cover of one of the songs. I'm like, this is an amazing song. Then I realized it was a cover, dug deeper into it, and then I started listening to the soundtrack. This is an amazing soundtrack. Doesn't that story actually go that your awesome coworker was like, dude, don't you know that this is from Prince of Egypt? That's pretty much Yeah, it, yeah. I'm pretty sure Jasmine put you in your place. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Jasmine. Yes. <laughs> so it's, uh, that's, there's been some uh, interesting things. And now I'm not usually one to just sit down and watch a movie, at least not recently. I, I I have a tendency to keep very busy in my life. So I've created a list of movies that I now need to watch based solely on how amazing their soundtracks have been. So the list is growing. Libby's going to force me to watch some. My wife is going to force me to watch some, but I will watch some. And we will probably force our spouses to watch them, which I think it is well worth saying uh, that Nick's wife, Elizabeth, is a huge Disney fan, which is awesome. And I did not choose any Disney films for my top five because my top five would only have been Disney films, uh, Disney musicals. So I think we need to do a whole separate episode specifically on Disney. I think that's a I think that's a great idea. Now, there is a, a couple more here. Dear Evan Hansen got me into a bit of a Ben Platt uh, theme, and it, I realized that not only does he sing in musicals, he's just a generally a really good singer. So uh, as he comes out with more and more albums and more and more songs, I just keep getting hooked on the newest one. Um, the one I've been listening to on repeat, one particular song called Older, if you haven't heard it. I haven't heard it. I need to get it. Yes. Listen to that. And then Avi Copland. Now... Hmm, I don't know who that is. Livy is giving me an interesting look, but have you heard of Pentatonix? Of course. He is the original bass singer from Pentatonix. Oh, of course. Of course. As any bass singer or player will tell you, you are never forefront of anything. I am the geek that played a six-foot clarinet. I can tell you that wholeheartedly. Libby played... You, you uh, didn't like those whole notes <laughs> over bars and bars and bars. Yes. 18. One at, at one point. Uh, okay. Um, yes. But when you put this singer, who was this background bass singer, which he was good in his own right in pentatonics, but when you put him in the forefront of his own group, he stands out so amazingly. His voice is amazingly smooth. Mm. And it's not all extreme bass stuff like he they pushed in the acapella group, but it's this smooth, 
flowing and just kind of classic folky sound with a little bit of newer stuff thrown in there. So great, great artist on his own. Libby, you have to hear it. I have to check him out. My grandfather was a bass. He was a bass singer. I love bass singers. Yeah. Got to check it out. Okay, Libby, what, what's uh, what's going through your playlist right now? Well, so when I'm working, uh, I process invoices. When I'm doing that, I uh, Nick's giving me this look like, oh my God, how boring. It's actually really interesting. But uh, so I have on loop Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, Rent, and Shrek. That's basically just on loop. Uh, also... This is sort of, I like hybrid songs. So Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton did a cover of Without You from Rent, which is just stunningly beautiful and kind of uh, plums the depths of the song, if you will. He adds a lot of, a lot to it. It's not quite, yeah, he adds more emotion to it if you could imagine that's possible. Um, I also listened to... uh, Ben Platt and Lin-Manuel Miranda's Found Tonight, which is just so amazing. Oh, yes. Again, thank you, Amy and Brandon. Pretty sure Brandon was driving me home one night and was like, you have to hear this. Um, I, like Nick, am a huge fan of movie soundtracks. We will definitely talk more about those in our show. Uh, The one I've been listening to lately is Thomas Newman's soundtrack from the movie Tolkien, which is a heart-wrenching movie. But the soundtrack is kind of like Finding Nemo and Lemony Snicket had a baby and it's just hauntingly beautiful. So it's Thomas Newman has some real my my absolute favorite game is to go into a movie theater and before the show is over, be able to guess who the composer is. That is my absolute favorite game. And Thomas Newman has these little flares and flashes where you're like, oh, it couldn't be anybody else. It's got to be him. Um, So I knew just in the the part of the dvd before you hit play where it shows you little snippets of scenes and i was like wait wait nate don't hit play i know who this is and i was right uh i'm also fa- falling back in love with mumford and sons we had a rather painful rift and uh, that rift is known as their album from 2015 wilder mind uh their next album i liked better uh so i'm kind of coming back to mumford and sons that's what i'm listening to right now okay excellent now I know we're a little long-winded and our format's a little loose at this point, but we're we're going to be working on this. I think we're going to conclude for today, though. Yep. And we're going to wrap this up and we're going to see if we could uh, come up with something really fun for next time. And uh, again, you have been listening to Dr. Elizabeth Concord and Nicholas Atchison Wainwright III. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you next time.